The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Again, really nice to be here with everyone. Um, if you're new here, my name's Mark Nunberg. I'm one of the guiding teachers at Common Ground Meditation Center. And... Uh, yeah, just great to be here and big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. And as I mentioned uh, near the beginning, um, if you haven't been coming, we've been looking at the experience of freedom, just generally as human beings, how do we bump into that experience of freedom? What do we know about it? But in particular for folks who have been studying and following, practicing these Buddhist the Buddhist teachings, um, what, what is the experience of freedom? What do we mean by spiritual freedom? And it's really important to, you know, have an ongoing interest that really helps to guide our practice. So I want to talk today, um, you know, maybe about freedom from more gross experience to more refined, subtle experience. And just think about freedom along that spectrum from gross to uh, more refined, more subtle. And one of the, you know, in our relational world, which is the world we mostly know, um, the Buddhist teachings do point to what could be called a non-relational experience, that empty space that can be met or in intuited, experienced in practice, in meditation in particular. But mostly we're in a relational world and we're relating to our thoughts, we're relating to our emotions, we're relating to sensation, we're relating to each other all the time. We're in relationship. And of course, the Buddhist teachings has a lot to say about this world. And uh, I tried to give a sense like one of the ways to relate to this ordinary world of experience, sense experience, is to skillfully use form or restraint. You know, we adopt, we embrace a practice, right? And... Uh, even like putting that on us, like, oh, I should be present. Well, that's, you know, we can, and maybe we do experience that as oppressive at times, like, oh, I got to be present. I can't just be, allow myself to be distracted or allow my mind to wander. But partly what we're discovering in this world is um, really valuing these forms that we can pick up. And what motivates us, of course, is when we see what happens when our mind and other people's minds aren't using a skillful, wholesome form. And instead, you know, it's basically the mind, my mind or your mind's habits being played out in real time, set loose upon the world. And then we get a world like we have. Right? We have a world where there's a lot of ignorant habits that have free reign and a lot of greedy habits that have free reign and a lot of aversive habits 
of mind that have free reign. And uh, as orderly as our world may seem, you know, there is tremendous suffering. And that suffering to a large degree arises because us humans were afraid or we haven't learned the value of training the heart of this liberating, you know, I'm going to say that provocatively, This the, these liberating practices of restraint. Because that's the thing, you know, when we show up in this world, we show up with a lot of habits, habits of mind. And a lot of those habits arise out of greed, hatred, and delusion. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And so our option is to just let them, let those habits move and express themselves and we act them out in the world, causing ourselves and others harm, or we practice some skillful form of restraint. And this is, you know, the world of morality. It never works perfectly, but it's so much better. It's like um, one of the shadows, not just in Buddhism, but I think in general in spiritual practice is we see how messy the world is. Those of you who aren't in Minnesota, you know, we've had another recent shooting of a young black man um, with a no-knock warrant. Please open the door. And within nine seconds had shot this person, Amir Locke is a person's name. And if you watch the video, it's, it's uh, I don't know if you like me, the, the one clear thing is the response, at least that arose in my heart, this should not happen. It shouldn't be this way that this sort of thing happens, that a young adult with a license to carry a gun, <laughs> being surprised in the middle of the night, um, gets shot within nine seconds. Now, I know things are always more complicated than any simple story, but this is the world we live in. This is the relational world we live in. And there are so many other examples of this. This is just the most recent, poignant, painful example of of the injustice and the not being able to count on wise restraint wise consideration about how can we take care of everyone, how can we take care of everyone um, in a way that doesn't oppress, doesn't take advantage. And we don't, it doesn't really work to say, wait, wait, wait a minute, that's just too complicated. How are we ever going to figure that out? And to kind of give ourselves a pass. But it also isn't quite right to think that we're going to get it right either and to be arrogantly certain that we know the way it should be. And it, it really kind of brings us to this point and it's why in the, in the handouts today I put in the chat, I'm assuming everybody got saw that link for the Sunday resources, I put two articles that I thought we could discuss today and then also next week. One is from Gil Fransdahl, a wonderful teacher on the West Coast um, at Insight Meditation Center and Insight Retreat Center, just in the South Bay of the San Francisco area. 
and its uh, title is The Relational and the Non-Relational Dimensions of Buddhist Practice. I recommend you take a look at it. It's not very long, and it really talks about this spectrum of practice, and I'll, I'll kind of um, introduce it in just a moment. But there's this other article I want to just mention that's there too. This is by um, Ajahn Sundara. Uh, she's one of the senior nuns, Buddhist nuns, at Amaravati in England, one of the Western monasteries that Ajahn Sumero started um, Ajahn Sundara, I think she's been a, a monastic for, oh, probably at least 35 years, I'm guessing now. Um, something like that, though. And I have had the good fortune of meeting her a long time ago and just found her teachings quite useful. And this article is titled Freedom in Restraint. And it really talks about um, the... Uh, let me just put the, there's the uh, Sunday resources again, if someone didn't get it. And it just talks about this um, place, you know, being a monastic and for, you know, monastics, there are all kinds of rules that they follow around their speech, around their possessions. You know, a lot of you know, they don't use money. And uh, so they're dependent on people feeding them. They can't even store food overnight, you know, with the exception of some medicines. So they, they're dependent on somebody feeding them every day. They have very limited possessions, just a set of robes and a bowl and some toiletries and a few other study materials. Um, and so just... Uh, a way of understanding and appreciating these different forms. Now, all of us, I'm guessing, are lay people, but we also have forms that we can pick up, like the five precepts. I put that's one of the uh, um, one of the articles that is there. It's just Common Ground's Refuge and Precept Ceremony, and. Um, just taking these precepts as a way, as like a container for our lives. I undertake the training to refrain from killing and harming living beings. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be completely successful at that, but it kind of slows things down or brings a spotlight, illuminates different places in our life. I noticed this morning, I think it was, um, when I was brushing my teeth, there was a fruit fly sort of buzzing around. And I noticed right there in my mind the intention, I bet if I was quick, I could catch it and kill it. <laughs> and I, you know, I normally don't do that, and I didn't do it this morning either, but that intention is still there to want to get rid of it, even if it involves killing it. And, uh, and it's really nice to have taken the, these five training precepts, undertaking the training to refrain from killing, undertaking the training to refrain from taking things that haven't been freely given to me, undertaking the training to refrain from um, sexual misconduct, you know, engaging sexuality, my sexual interests in ways that cause harm to myself or to someone else. The fourth is undertaking the training to refrain from using speech in ways that cause harm, like telling lies or using harsh speech, or gossiping, or even just using a lot of idle speech that 
takes people's time <laughs> without asking them. We just keep talking to them. Even that's a, a violation of that training precept. And then the fifth training precept is undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind that, in ways that make it careless. And we can talk, in, intoxicate the mind in any number of ways. But part of experiencing freedom in relationship, in, in a relational world, is intentionally undertaking some restraints using a form. Some of you, maybe even a lot of you, are in an intimate relationship with one or more human beings, or you're raising kids, or you're taking care of some of the elders in your life, and you're in that, and it's nice to sort of, for that relationship, whether it's consciously articulated or not, to have some form, like, I don't do this, or this is the intention behind this interaction. Otherwise, we have that sort of, you know, dog-eat-dog kind of world where we just do whatever we want to do to get whatever we want to get. And there's no freedom in that world. There's just a lot of fear. Even if we happen to be the strongest and the biggest and have the most power, even then, you know, the Buddha taught, we lie in fear. We lie awake at night in fear because we know everybody wants to knock us off the top of the mountain. They want our power. They want our privilege. So even if we have a lot, have a lot of privilege, it's an insecure place. So we normally, you know, in, in Buddhist practice, we maybe don't emphasize this place of freedom as often as we should. And I'll, I'll go on to talk about these other levels of freedom. But really, these deeper levels, more refined levels of freedom, really depend on um, participating in this grosser aspect of life, this more ordinary level of sense experience and relationship with a lot of wisdom and a lot of sensitivity. What kind of forms, what kind of moral structures are useful for me in my relationship with food, in my relationship with the people I live with, in relationship with the community I'm part of, and the relationship to the ways that I make money and so I can pay my way? Is it okay to cheat on our taxes? Or just a little bit? <laughs> you know, it's sort of like... And, the, and a lot of these, you know, we might feel are imposed from above by society, by government, by whatever, people with power over us. But a lot of these restraints and a lot of these forms we take up ourselves. Just like I mentioned in the meditation, you know, and hopefully I really strongly encourage all of us to put aside time every day to create that, let's just be funny or provocative about it, to create that oppressive form. Mark, you're going to sit down for 45 minutes at a minimum every day and meditate. And you're going to sit still, even when you don't want to sit still. And you're going to acknowledge that it's like this, even when you don't want to acknowledge that it's like this, right? You know, it's sort of that 
age old, you know, we take the medicine because we know the medicine's good for us. We brush our teeth, we get up in time to make it to work. We have all kinds of forms. And the question is, have we realized how essential form, structure, restraint is in life? So that we're not just doing it unconsciously or grudgingly, but we're we're kind of really enlivened by it. Okay, what sort of forms, what sort of restraint, what sort of structures actually will be causes for happiness and freedom in my life, in my relationships? And how can I go about articulating these to myself, navigating this territory with others, so that we can live harmoniously. And it's true, you know, it's true in all sorts of fields. People who have wor workshops, you know, where they build stuff. There's some order, there's some structure, there, there are some safety rules that they probably follow. People who are craftspeople or artists, you know, or writers. There's some structure, there's some rules that are followed. And um, these precepts are a really wonderful way to start. And I just want to add, there's three additional precepts that are used, especially like when lay people go to a Buddhist monastery. But really, you can work with these three additional precepts. So it's called the eight precepts, the first five I mentioned, undertaking the training to, to refrain from killing and harming, undertaking the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been given. And that's just such an interesting reflection, like, well, what is actually given to me and what can I, is there for me to take? And then around sexuality and then around speech and then around the use of intoxicants. And then the, the precepts six, seven, and eight, um, the sixth precept is undertaking the training to refrain from eating at inappropriate times. And the way that to use that in our lay life, when you'd go to a monastery, it would mean that, you know, the nuns and the monks, they don't eat past midday, with a few exceptions, you know, that it might be allowable. But basically, no substantial food after midday. So that's, that's the specific training when you're at a monastery or when you like are on retreat and you decide to, to use that sixth precept. But a more general way is undertaking the training not to use food as entertainment. Instead, we use food as medicine. So when the body needs nutriment, we eat. And we eat food that would be good medicine for the body, food that our body can digest well. And our food that we can get a, you know, get a hold of that doesn't cause more harm than it needs to cause, you know, so we're conscious of how we eat in ways that isn't just to entertain ourselves, we're looking for some, we're bored, and so we're going to eat as a kind of entertainment to fill up the space of our lives. I mean, I do that. I'm not proud of it. And I've learned that it doesn't lead to happiness. But the habit's deep. And I notice that habit where the mind really feels like it needs some entertainment and foods seems the most easily available entertainment. So we go to the fridge and we find something interesting to do. 
interesting tastes, interesting things to chew, interesting things to swallow. And then we deal with the consequences of that kind of entertainment. So that's an interesting training to take up, you know, to use food as medicine, use drinks as medicine, not as entertainment. And it isn't like right and wrong, it's really the precept is there to illuminate experience and to, not to be good, but to learn how to be more happy and free, <laughs> right? We're exploring the use of restraint of structures and framing and practices as a way to experience a more resonant happiness and freedom. So consider how that might, how you might do that around food. Then the seventh precept is undertaking the training to reframe from adornments and entertainments, basically. It's, it's a little bit more elaborate and how it's written. But it's basically any kind of participation or engagement with entertainments or with adornments, you know, wearing an, a nice watch or jewelry or nice clothes or nice makeup or nice hat or nice, you know, whatever... You know, and even you could think of cars and other sort of branding items, you know, things that we collect around ourselves as a way of branding ourselves or creating an identity. In the same way that we use clothes and other adornments, entertainments, I went to the opera yesterday or something like that. And it's a way it's so how to how we use that stuff um as a way of inflating or building or maintaining a sense of self versus using entertainments and adornments as a medicine to sort of help us live our life in a wholesome way, right? Because we need some of that maybe. Entertain what someone might call entertainment might actually be quite um, edifying. We might learn a lot. I've been deeply moved by books and movies and conversations and other forms of art in ways that feel very much part of my practice, my spiritual practice and awakening process. So clearly it's not about, you know, saying no to entertainment or saying no to clothing or other sort of things that we dress ourselves up with, but just being interested about it. Is it a cause for more freedom in my life? Or is it a cause for more oppression in my life? And I'm sure, hopefully, everyone knows that experience where the possessions that we have and the interests that we have end up being really oppressive. Oh, this, my favorite musicians are in town. I have to go see them because that's who I am. I'm the person who goes sees these people when they're in town performing. And uh, it can end up being a real weight on our heart, like to define ourselves any way, whatever, however we might. I'm the person who always dresses this way or presents in this way. So that means I've got to find these sorts of clothes because that's my brand. You know, that's the identity I feel comfortable with. And again, I'm not claiming to be beyond uh, the sort of neurotic need for entertainments and the neurotic need for branding. I feel very much in the push and pull of this. And I, but I find it really interesting. 
And I find it a really important part of my practice to kind of be interested in that and to learn how to sense the freedom in restraint, the freedom in simplicity, the freedom in contentedness. And then the last of these uh, additional precepts that the first five are not really optional. Like if the Buddha would basically say, if you're interested in following these teachings, it doesn't really make sense unless you train with the first five precepts. And then the second three are sort of additional precepts to take up for period of, periods of time, especially for us lay people. For people in the monastic practice, you know, these three additional precepts get further articulated with a couple hundred more rules. <laughs> so both you know, the nuns and monks practice with more than 200 rules, which are a lot of those additional rules are basically the, these eight, but broken down into more detail, basically. So the then the uh, eighth precept is undertaking the training to refrain from high and luxurious seats. And uh, <clears throat> It kind of means like not using sleep as entertainment, not using comfort as entertainment. It doesn't mean we can't sit on a comfortable chair. It just means we want to be aware of what we're doing. And a lot of times we, we're sort of acting out some addiction to comfort. So we adjust and we get comfortable and then we get a little uncomfortable or we even anticipate getting uncomfortable. So we make another adjustment and then another adjustment, and then another little cold, we zip up, a little warm. We, And it, of course, all these adjustments and all the seeking out of comfort isn't it in itself bad. But to the degree that it absorbs us and becomes kind of a lifestyle, and I'm sure I'm not alone in seeing this. I remember I, I did a lot of backpacking in my early 20s, and, uh, and I did a lot of it with a couple of dear friends, and uh, and I was sort of known as the person who was extremely sensitive to being comfortable. And I kind of see it as a side effect for meditation practice. You know, we get more sensitive, and then so, of course, we're going to be sensitive to whether we're comfortable or not, too warm, too cool, how to, you know, where we're going to cook dinner when you're backpacking, where is just the right rock to lean against, you know, and how do we, what about the wind? Oh, we want sunshine on us because it's cold, or we want shade, or endless. It doesn't end. And it's just interesting for us, like when we undertake this eighth precept, it's really seeing the limitations of needing to be comfortable. It's a discomfort to need to be comfortable, right? It's stressful to um, value comfort above all else. And it's liberating to be okay with discomfort. To be able to know, yeah, this is unpleasant, but I don't have to add to the, like right now, the, this room was 45 when I came this morning, because uh, the office space where the teacher office is here at the city center, there's no basement underneath. And uh, so when we turned the garbage room of the restaurant, which this used to be, into a teacher office, um, we insulated it well, but it doesn't really hold heat on these cold days. 
especially when the heat's turned down at night. So you come in and it's freezing, so now my, my feet are cold. <laughs> and um, so what's our relationship to these discomforts? Because I could, I could really whip up some sort of heavy drama. Like even, you know, we need to change this. We need to put in floor heat in this room and we need to raise the money for that. Or we need to, you know, all these sort of things that might actually lead to more comfort down the road. But how often do we honestly assess the dis-ease, the agitation of being discontent and needing to fix? Now, I'm not saying we don't fix things. We don't make things better. Clearly, some things need to be addressed. But there's a lot of busyness of that um, actually is more stressful than any benefit that's going to arrive from it. And I'll just give, you know, one example I've given before. is just needing chocolate. You know, I, not so much these days, but in the past, you know, it was sort of like how I would work hard to justify going out and getting something sweet. And it was so much work for the pleasure that would be gotten. And yet... That addiction to comfort or that addiction to pleasure was such that the mind sort of took the bait over and over again, day after day. And this is very oppressive. So, you know, the point of the talk and the next few talks, when we were looking at this spectrum of freedom, so the freedom in the relational world, next week I'll talk more about um, what does freedom look like in relationship to other people in our just ordinary relationships? But just even now in terms of sense experience, given that we're sensitive, given that we have our likes and dislikes, we have our preferences, there's nothing wrong, can't get rid of preferences. What does freedom look like? And in a way, we never will find perfect freedom without deep insight, but even on just this level of ordinary freedom, ordinary contentedness, ordinary um, ease in a sense world where we have our likes and dislikes, what actually is working for us? What isn't working for us? Where are those places in our lives where we have a lot of that endless looping of addiction? needing things to be a particular way. I tend to be a somewhat orderly person. And so when things are in a disorderly way, it's like part of my mind is like, I can't be relaxed until I put this back where it belongs and this and then do that. And it's real work for me to see something that in my mind is out of place. And it just to, for me, just to look like the freedom of not needing to get up and move that thing and put that away. And interestingly, if I really get free not having to fix that thing, then it can be very appropriate for me to go over and take care of that problem, put something away. Because now I'm not doing it neurotically, because I'll be unhappy if I don't do it, I'll be tight if I don't do it. I made peace with it being a mess or being the way it is. And now I'm okay 
and I'm also okay moving it. So if it happens to be passing by, then I'm going to put it away. Why not? And it's just an interesting exploration, and it really is in some ways the most accessible way to experience freedom, is to just get interested, what is my relationship to all the experiences around me, all the sense experiences that are available to me. You know, we often imagine that if we had more resources, we'd be happier. But it's really good to, you know, have a few friends that have a lot of resources (laughs) to realize, you know, the many creative ways we have to create suffering for ourselves. And I'd still prefer to have more resources than less, more health than less health, you know, more money than less money, more good friendships than less good friendships. These things clearly matter. Living in a more orderly world than a less orderly world. I still prefer these things. But I don't imagine that sense sense experiences are going to take care of us. And one of the things you'll see reading uh, um, Ajahn Sundara's article on the freedom in restraint is that what really leads to freedom in the end is going beyond that skill in restraint. It's an essential skill to have, but it isn't the end of the spiritual practice. But it's not so easy to continue with deeper practice when we haven't become good students of the skill in restraint. So again, you might just reflect like with the five precepts and then those three additional precepts like one training you might take up this week because it's in the handout um it's uh the title is like common grounds refuge and precept ceremony but you'll just get a rendition of those five precepts and the three additional precepts and you might just find a time every day to read through them and when you look through them instead of thinking of it as some oppressive thing you're putting on yourself, you got to be good, God will punish you if you're bad, or whatever. It's more like this curious investigation of freedom. How might I be able to bring more freedom into my life if I take up this training of not killing and not harming? How might I bring in more freedom in my life, being more reflective about not taking what hasn't been given to me, being really careful about stealing, even in the most subtle ways? What might I be taking that I shouldn't take? And seeing it and refraining will actually bring in real freedom, real happiness. One of the freedoms the Buddha talks about it's the bliss of blamelessness. You know, this is the training of sila, is the word we use, virtue, this deep, resonant valuing of non-harming, is when we realize that I can trust my heart. Like, I'm going to go to this meeting, or I'm going to go home, or I'm going to go protest the sort of um, problems with our policing in our city, 
I'm going to go do these things and uh, and I can trust my heart knows the difference between what's skillful and unskillful and knows how to restrain itself from acting out in ways that's unskillful. There's so much freedom when we can trust that the um, that we have the wise capacity to restrain ourselves from not acting out unwholesome intentions and impulses. That's real freedom. Just talk to somebody who doesn't have that freedom and they act out unwholesome impulses. They, over and over again, and sometimes we're that person, of course, we do something stupid that causes ourselves and others harm. And there we do it again. And there we do it again. That's not freedom. That's being oppressed by our habit energies. They're not personal, but they can totally ruin our lives. And some of Common Ground's leaders have been volunteering and teaching in the prisons around in Minnesota and, and Western Wisconsin for decades now. And they'll tell you, I've done a little bit of this prison work myself, and they'll tell you that the people they interact with and are teaching mindfulness practices to, you know, it was this inability. There was a situation where some impulse gets triggered and the mind acts on it because there wasn't enough ability to restrain, not, not enough ability to recognize this is unwholesome, unhelpful, this causes problems. And we're not so different from those people, right? We all have unskillful, unwholesome impulses. And as a practitioner, if you don't think you do, I'd really wonder if you're paying attention enough. But eventually we'll get to the point where, not that we'll be absent of those unskillful impulses, but the power of restraint will be there to balance the force of those unskillful habits and we'll feel safe. There will be the freedom of safety like, to some degree at least, I can trust myself not to do something really stupid. And that's not nothing. <laughs> you know, just in the great scheme of looking for happiness as a human being, having a heart that we can trust, no matter what conditions, like so even when somebody does something really stupid on the highway, we can trust that the anger that might get triggered won't lead to us doing something stupid. I've had people do amazing things to me on the highway. I mean, I just could not believe it um, because something I did or something they imagine I did made them angry. And uh, it just breaks my heart. I mean, I'm glad that I didn't get hurt in those situations, but uh, I'm also really, uh, I really care because I would not want a mind, a heart that impulsive that they'd be willing to risk their own life, many others, just to get sweet revenge or whatever they imagined they were getting by cutting me off, you know, and doing something stupid on the road. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.